You're listening to the full version of The Piece of Persistence. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to The Piece of Persistence, the show where we seek to uncover the keys to happiness and success one honest conversation at a time. I'm your host, Abigail Wright, and today we get to meet Tony Taylor, pilot, interplanetary navigator, and author. Tony was a space cadet before there was a space program, meaning that his mind was in space while his body walked on the Earth. He decided early on that he wanted to be an astronaut, and fortunately, the space age came along with the launch of Sputnik in 1957 while he was still in high school, and his dream entered the realm of the possible. Knowing that astronauts usually start as pilots, he went to the U.S. Air Force Academy, followed by pilot training, and eventually found himself in Vietnam flying 100 combat missions over North Vietnam through some of the best air defenses the world has ever seen. During that time, he became a war correspondent for his hometown newspaper. The articles he wrote would later lay the foundation for his first published novel, Counters, in 2008, a tale of young pilots, the Red Baron, and a collie named Sub-Lieutenant Sam. After returning home and spending a few more years in the Air Force, he resigned to go to graduate school, finishing with an MS in physics. These experiences equipped him, he believed, to follow through with his astronaut dream, which included becoming the first person to walk around on Mars. After several applications to NASA, followed by several rejections, he decided this was not to be, so he consoled himself with the next best thing, working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and Kinetics Aerospace Inc. to navigate unmanned NASA spacecraft through the solar system. He visited, metaphorically, all eight planets over the course of a 30-year career, navigating spacecraft on projects Voyager, Cassini, Mars Polar Lander, Galileo, and Messenger, among others. As a capstone, he also helped navigate the New Horizons spacecraft to minor planet Pluto. These experiences helped provide underpinnings for his second novel, The Darkest Side of Saturn, in 2014, a story of an asteroid, a preacher, a reluctant prophet of doom, and a ballerina, things that naturally go together. His third novel, Rockets, Rhymes, and Recipes, is targeted for release later this year in 2018. It provides a vicarious substitute for his astronaut dream. Instead of walking around on Mars, he writes of the first colonists on Mars in a tale that includes a president, nuclear annihilation, and a polite alien. A scientific and objective realist, he nevertheless enjoys evoking the mystical in his novels, salting liberally with whimsical humor. His published works have collected several honors, including the International Eric Hoffer Award, first place winner for genre fiction, and shortlist for the grand prize, the Arizona Literary Contest, Book of the Year Award, the Books and Author Award, winner for science fiction, the Global Ebook Award, silver medal winner for science fiction, and various honorable mentions and finalist awards. Tony lives with his wife Jan in Sedona, Arizona. He's proud of his two daughters and two grandsons. And between travels and tennis, he hopes to produce a few more novels before launching on a black sky voyage into the great unknown. He may not be the only interplanetary navigator in Sedona, land of vortices and UFO enthusiasts, but he is probably the only one who actually worked for NASA. Tony, thank you so much for sitting down with us today to tell your story. I am so excited to meet you. Thank you, Abby. That sounds uh, a lot more impressive than it feels. (laughs) Actually, you've already uh, told everything that I was going to talk about. Oh, great. So we're done. But that's okay. So we're done. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, uh, one little thing. I've changed the name of my uh, novel that's coming out this year. At least I hope it's coming out this year. I finished editing it and and so forth. Now I just need to find a publisher. But instead of uh, Rockets, Rhymes, and Recipes, it's Black Sky 
voyage. Ooh. Tony, I remember seeing a replay of this 80s movie called Space Camp as a very little girl and wanting to be an astronaut, although I've mm-hmm. never pursued it like you did. Do you remember what inspired you to want to get into space exploration? When I was a little kid, I used to have these dreams of flying and floating, and I wanted to know what it was like to be weightless. And mm-hmm. so it was just a kid's dream, nothing profound. I think most kids' desires are probably not profound, but sometimes it just gets them started, and they just stuck in me, and I never changed course. Eventually, I became a pilot, but not an astronaut. It was uh, one of those, you know, tiny little things that you start off with, and somehow it just sticks around, and it somehow guides the rest of your life. Hmm. Yeah, and you were a combat pilot and a war correspondent during Vietnam. What was it like for you at the time, and what are your thoughts now about war as a veteran? The flying was very exciting and very scary also. There's an old saying in flying that flying is 99% boredom and 1% stark terror. Hmm. And that's probably two of a lot of things. But in uh, Vietnam, it was probably more like 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you're glad you did, but you didn't like it at all while you were there. For becoming a war correspondent, I'd read the great Ernie Pyle's book about his experiences in World War II. He was a uh, correspondent. And the reason it was lying around uh, the house when I was a kid was because one of my uncles had uh, talked about in one of Ernie Powell's encounters. Oh, wow. I thought I would try to emulate him, but in any event, my thoughts about war are that, well, does anybody like it? Yes, some people do like it. Most normal people don't. Unfortunately, I think it's part of the human condition, and it's always a waste. We haven't evolved enough yet to learn how to avoid it, and I'm not sanguine about the short term for humanity, but I think the long term is rosy. I don't think we're ever going to completely wipe ourselves out, but we may get ourselves into bad situations. But I think the long term over the course of hundreds of years is rosy. We may nearly wipe ourselves out maybe multiple times, but that reminds me of a great science fiction novel by Walter Miller back in the 1950s. Mm. Uh, The title is A Canticle for Leibowitz. It's about the aftermath of a nuclear war and and the very dark ages that lasted for maybe 100 years or more. And uh, technology slowly builds up and nuclear weapons come back again. And at the end, there's another nuclear holocaust and everything starts all over again. Mm. One of the reasons I like that is because one of my novels was compared favorably to it. Very nice. A little changing the topic, but also about your early years. I've also been singing in a workshop of an opera about the story of Emmett Till, that black child from Chicago who was brutally murdered in the segregated South. You grew up in South Carolina during segregation. What was that like for you? It was bad, as I remember it. My family was the only one that I knew that was pro-integration, anti-segregation. We were liberal, and there weren't a lot of liberals in the Deep South at that time. In any event, I I remember segregated bathrooms, uh, drinking fountains, separate schools, no mixed bathing in public swimming pools and all of that stuff. But by the time I got back from uh, Vietnam in 1967, I was really happy to see that most of that overt stuff was gone. I started being a little bit prouder of the South at that point, Mm. I think. What are your thoughts about the recent visible resurgence of racially related riots and demonstrations? Although the civil rights era back in the 60s and the 70s, the overt things were gone, I think the attitudes were still there in a lot of people. And it just went underground. And uh, lately, it was the uh, political partisanship that just let it develop and go. Mm. I'm sorry to see that, but I'm not terribly surprised about this problem. Sure. 
You know, you mentioned coming back from Vietnam and your career has been through some huge transitions as well as your life. What was it like for you going back to school for physics after Vietnam? That was very scary too. Vietnam was scary and going back to school was scary because I cut loose from the Air Force and I had no income Mm. other than savings and a modest GI Bill income. I had a wife and uh, two kids and no prospect for a job in sight. It was basically like stepping off a cliff into the unknown. If I didn't get that degree, I was going to be doomed career-wise. Maybe that was good that I did worry about it because it made me work harder because I knew that failure was not an option. So I did get the degree and stayed on for about a year at the University of Arizona in Tucson working at the Lunar Planetary Laboratory there. And then I got a job offer after that. That's great. Do you have any advice for anyone who's thinking about making a big or similarly scary change in their direction in life? Basically, go for it. (laughs) If it's something that you really like and you want to do, especially if you can play with it and have fun, despite the risks, you know, you, you might fail. That's part of the process. But if you don't do it, and if you stick with something you're not happy with, I think you might feel like a bigger failure later on for not taking an opportunity that you had. So drive and work hard to succeed, but succeed in something that you like to play with. The best work that you ever do comes from playing at it, not working at it. Hmm, that's great advice. I think that probably applies to you, too. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) You seem to have a finger in a lot of things going on, and you seem to be playing a lot. Yeah, I've been wearing a lot of new hats recently. It's interesting and I'm learning a lot. I guess there are some growing pains, but I think it's worth it in the end. It sounds like your risk that you took was totally worth Uh it. And you're the first person now to have navigated to all eight planets of the solar system working as an interplanetary navigator. And I really want to hear about your experience with that. I think everyone else would, too. It's really exciting. I was on a lot of NASA projects when I was working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I started on Voyager, which was launched in the late 70s, I forget exactly when it was, 77, 78, or something like that. And it went by uh, Jupiter first, but that was before I got there. I got on the navigation team in 1980, and we navigated two spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. One was launched right after the other. That was just to have more than one egg in a basket in case one of them failed. These are really expensive projects, particularly that one. That was a flagship project for NASA. They didn't like the idea of failure at all. Mm. After I got on it, we went by uh, Saturn. I think the first flyby of Saturn was about 1982, and then Uranus came along in 1986, and then Neptune in 1989. It took a long time to get to the outer planets. And then after that, I went on to the Cassini project, which was on its way to Saturn, but it had to go by Venus and Earth in order to pick up enough energy to get there. That's how I got those planets. I have been to Earth. Congratulations. This may be one of the most interesting of the planets. Well, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Then I finally got got Jupiter after missing it on Voyager. I got a Jupiter on the uh, Galileo mission and uh, Mars on the Mars Polar Lander mission. I was part of a team that was trying to avoid a navigation disaster for that mission. And we did avoid a uh, navigation disaster, but actually we suffered a different disaster when the spacecraft crashed somewhere around the South Pole yeah. of the planet. But that still counts. That was I like an uh, imperial metric error, right? Some it was, and that was part of the reason one of the spacecraft before Mars Polar Lander, part of the team was using English metric systems, I think. And our part of the team, the navigators, were using regular metric. You know, things went awry, and that spacecraft was lost. And then along came Mars Polar Lander, where we were trying to avoid that kind of problem, and we did. 
So at least it wasn't the navigators that bought the bullet on that yeah, one. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So that was seven of the planets. And then finally I got Mercury on the messenger mission. We launched that one. I think we launched it 2004. It made its first flyby of Mercury in 2008. It made three flybys of Mercury before it lost enough energy to go into orbit the fourth time. I got that one on the first flyby in 2008, and I realized, well, now I've got all eight planets. I can just retire and write books full-time. <laughs> now, Pluto, of course, had been demoted to a dwarf planet years ago. There was a big brouhaha about that, and I was a little worried that it might be promoted again. <laughs> so as insurance, just to make sure that I wasn't left with a short set of cards, and I got that one in uh, the 2015 flyby of the New Horizons spacecraft. They asked me if I could come back and help oh, out. Good the navigation and I did come back and help out. They had it pretty well in hand. I so I was just sort of a, a third wheel there, but that's okay. I had some part in that. Nice. Did you have any exciting experiences or interesting revelations while you were traveling metaphorically to these planets? <laughs> well, actually, yeah, the title of one of my books popped into my head while I was watching some of the first pictures come down from Voyager of Saturn, mm. from the far side of Saturn. The phrase that popped into my head was the dark side of Saturn. And I said, oh, wouldn't that be a great idea for a novel? Nice. <laughs> so about 10 years later, I actually started one based on nothing more than that title and that experience and finally came out with it in 2014. It takes me a long time to finish a novel. I can imagine. A lot longer than most people because I have a one-track mind. When I get on a project, I can't multiplex. I have to abandon one thing and think about the other. And when I get into that mode, you know, that's the only thing that exists for me. Mm. Everything else goes away, which is sort of the opposite of you, it sounds like. Uh, you've got your hand in so many projects, I don't see how you're able to do it. <laughs> but some people are like that. Yeah. I think both tendencies come with different challenges, for sure. Mm -hmm. Your first book, that started from your experience as a war correspondent? I realize just while I'm talking that a lot of things pop into my head that eventually have something to do with my life later on. Something popped into my head while I was on the way to Vietnam. I was coming from England and I landed in New Jersey. When I was getting onto a bus, stepping onto the first step, some little idea fell into a fertile part of my brain. And by the time I got to my seat, it had dug its roots in so that nothing short of mind surgery mm -hmm. could get it out. And the idea was that I was going to be a war correspondent as well as a combatant. Wow. When I got there, I kept a journal and I wrote articles to my hometown newspaper and they printed them. I collected them when I went home. And then years later, around 1995, I decided that I'd fictionalize those articles and weave them into a story of about half of which consisted of real experiences and about half of it was total fabrication. But true lies, sometimes fiction can be a truer than true life. Interesting. How is that? Fiction, you get to sort of go freewheeling. You get to speculate and say what you think things are without having the impediment of political correctness or having to worry about who you might offend and that kind of thing. So I think you can tell the bigger picture of truth through fiction than you can with nonfiction. I've always liked that, especially I think about sci-fi in fiction and in, in television and film. I think it's interesting because it provides such an opportunity for writers to be able 
able to look at current events mm -hmm. or possible future outcomes mm -hmm. of current trends mm -hmm. without having the closeness of actual reality. So I, I think that's interesting that you say that. I've always been drawn to sci-fi for that reason. Science fiction writers are the navigators for our species. You know, they look far ahead into the future and they sort of point to where we're going if we don't change things. That's one thing I like about, you know, science fiction. Like, for instance, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Back when he wrote that, you know, he had that vision of a world that might happen if we don't change course. The other classic, the one that's sort of paired with that, is George Orwell's 1984, and that's sort mm -hmm. of the opposite view, where the world turns into dictatorships, you know, who play mind games with their populations and promote war and have enemies and so forth. That actually seems to be what's happening nowadays. Mm -hmm. I think George Orwell was one of those long-term navigators of, of who we are and where we're going. Mm -hmm. Did you always enjoy writing, and did you think that that's what you might be doing when you retired? There's a favorite quote of mine, I do not like to write, I like to have written. <laughs> it was uh, Gloria Steiner, the feminist and the columnist oh. about writing. That quote is also sort of the same way I felt about flying in Vietnam. I uh, do not like to mm. fly in Vietnam, I like to have flown. That pretty well summarizes my feelings about that. I got the notion that I could write somewhere along the uh, the fourth grade. Here's another one of those moments. There was a teacher, I, I'm going to call her Mrs. LaCroix, I think. But in any event, I, I wrote an essay for her class. She had assigned an essay, and I threw everything I knew into that. Uh, you know, long sentences, big words. I think that's the first time I ever used the word manifest in a sentence because I had just discovered it sometime in the fourth grade. And it was really sentimental and soppy, but it hit her buttons, I guess, because I think she gave me an A+. Plus. Regardless of what the grade was that she gave me, she wrote a paragraph at the top of the paper in red, and it was full of praise. So I, I think that's the first time that I ever thought, wow, I can write. What do you know? And after that, uh, mm -hmm. I got into a science fiction reading phase. Like I said, I, I read Huxley's Brave New World and Orwell's 1984 and Arthur C. Clarke's Childhoods and, and so forth. And I liked this stuff since I was already a space cadet. So I started writing novels way back in the 1980s. But then there was work, and like I said, I'm a very slow writer. But finally, I started publishing with Counters, even though I had started writing these books long before. I started publishing with Counters in 2008, and then The Darkest Side of Saturn in 2014, and now uh, Black Sky Voyage this year, if I'm uh, lucky and can find a publisher. Otherwise, I'm going to publish it myself. And of course, I'm always interested in movie offers, so I'm expecting all of the movie people in your circles to uh, query me on my novels. <laughs> <laughs> nice. If you were to choose one to make into a movie, do you have a favorite book you've written and why? Yeah, Darkest Side of Saturn. Basically, I pulled out all the stops. An asteroid, a preacher, two astronomers, ballet, not a Greek, but a geek chorus, <laughs> global disasters and hymns and pseudo-Bible verses. I had fun. I put in speculations on consciousness and evolution and religion and beliefs. Along with the misery of writing that, I also had fun. I got to design a realistic asteroid orbit and research all kinds of interesting things like the, the structure of hymns and the nature of Greek courses, even 
ancient Polynesian sea navigation of all things. Huh. I've got a, a boat in there named the Hokulea, a boat that uh, recently made a trip around the world oh, wow. to raise awareness and pride of the Polynesians for their ability to have settled so much area in the Pacific Ocean back hundreds of years ago. Where can we find and purchase your writings? Counters and the Dr. Satter Saturn on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of the usual online bookstores. And I hope that Black Sky Voyage will be on those also when it comes out. It can also be uh, entered from my website and a little bit of information about the books on the website, which is blackskyvoyages.com, plural, as opposed to the book, which is Black Sky Voyage. We'll be sure to link it in the show notes for you so people can go to that. You mentioned a couple of times now that uh, writing while you're doing it makes you miserable. (laughs) What do you think the value is in doing these things that make you so miserable? You find places where you can play, where you can really have fun. I think the value is sort of expressed by the title of your podcast, which is Hmm. persistence, the doing of things, something that's ahead of you. I mean, there's always a goal ahead of you or some deadline you need to meet, and it's the doing to get to those points that I think are valuable. You know, the nature of space travel is changing so much, and there's so much to look forward to, especially after that recent successful launch of the SpaceX Falcon Heavy. I thought it was really exciting. But I'm just curious, especially with this sort of third-party space travel now, what are your thoughts about its future, and do you think you'll ever get to be a space tourist? I'd like to be a space tourist. I'm not sure that's going to be developed while I'm still walking the Earth, but I like the idea of Elon Musk and his SpaceX Falcon Heavy. We're in a race to put some of our eggs into another basket, Mm. which is Mars, before we uh, destroy ourselves. And I think this is the same thing that Elon Musk believes. He said he wants to put somebody on Mars by 2023, which is a little optimistic by my reckoning, but that's laudable. So I've got some ideas for him, including a really nifty space station designed by an engineer named Oliver Harwood, who died about 20 or 30 years ago. But I'm pretty sure he'd like it, so I'm using it in my current novel, Black Sky Voyage, about the first Mars colonists. And if he reads my book, then I think that he would become an advocate for this space station idea. So, Well, if any of our listeners happen to have a sixth degree <laughs> of separation from Elon Musk and want to reach out to him about Tony's book and suggestion you just go ahead and let us know at piece of persistence at gmail.com <laughs> other than hanging out with elon musk and designing the next space station through oliver harwood's design mm-hmm. what are your next goals and dreams i'd like to write a few more novels before i uh, shuffle off into the great unknown maybe i will but considering how long it took to write the first ones i'd say my next one should be coming out about 2035 <laughs> and so maybe we can have another interview then too perfect well you have fewer distractions now so maybe it'll happen sooner maybe so yeah i do have fewer distractions well you've accomplished so much uh, so far in your life Have you always been motivated and what motivates you in life? I have always been motivated, I think, marching to my own music, so to speak. I'm curious and I like exploring things. When I was younger, it was exploring physical things like climbing mountains and swimming oceans and that kind of thing. But in later life, it's mainly ideas, you know, the concepts of evolution and consciousness and artificial intelligence just fascinate me. The strangeness of particularity, you know. Why are we here and why is it right now and why is it me? Mm. And the 14 billion year existence of the universe, our span of existence is way, way less than the blink of an eye. So, you know, how incredible 
incredibly unlikely is it that you would be you living in this particular life at this particular time instead of you being Tom or Mary in that particular country or state or town or address or maybe some strange alien with uh, tentacles and <laughs> bad breath living on the opposite corner of the, <laughs> of the universe. So anyhow, is this all coincidence? Uh, you know, I think not, but I can't explain it. Mm. You know, the closest I can come, I think, is adopting Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, mm. where his meaning of myself is the universal I, which is the consciousness of every living being in the world, and probably he would include in the universe if he were writing it today, and how we're all connected somehow. Mm. Those are things I'd like to think about. Maybe I'll write some more about them, too. Wow. Yeah, that'll be exciting. Other than the questions, what are some of the biggest obstacles you've had to overcome in your life? I'm basically shy and introverted, and I'm not oh. very self-confident. Well, you're faking it brilliantly. <laughs> I do fake it a lot. That is very true. Mm. And I have a deathly fear of public speaking, although I have done public speaking and I'll need to do it again. So anyhow, these fears and uh, insecurities, I don't think are all bad because you can use them as a spur. If you know you're going to give a speech, for instance, then it makes you work harder and it makes you prepare and it, it gets you ready. And then by the time you actually do have to give it, you've built up a load of self-confidence and you can do it. And it's probably pretty good, too, because you've worked really hard on it. I think obstacles like that, unself-confidence, for instance, is not a bad thing. There's some good about it, too. I love that perspective. So what gives you the greatest joy at this moment in your life? Having written. <laughs> Having written. <laughs> and a great wife, a very smart wife who keeps me on the right course, and two great daughters and two great grandsons. Actually, two grandsons who are great. I don't mean two great grandsons. <laughs> and I have a few good years to go, I think. So that all bodes well. That's wonderful. Do you have any habits or traits that have contributed to your happiness and success? The secret is in the doing and always having something ahead, something that you plan towards and work for. I don't believe in happiness as a goal in itself, but only sort of a byproduct of what you do. You know, we're all on our own journeys. Actually, the, the destination is superfluous. The, the journey is really all there is. So, no, I don't have any secrets of happiness. It's just doing things and, and having things ahead of you that you strive to get to. And the happiness is a byproduct that comes out if you're in the right frame of mind. I think that's a pretty good frame for living, actually. Persistence is what we want. Persistent pursuit of goals. Yeah, I guess that's why I'm wearing all the hats that I'm wearing. You know, I'm, there's still a lot that I have to learn, so... <laughs> Yeah, director, actress, singer, anything else in there that you're doing? I also wrote a short film that's making the film festival circuit right now. So we just got back from Colorado. You must come to Sedona, to the Sedona Film Festival, and exhibit your film maybe next year. Nice. Yeah, I would love that. And we could meet in person. I think that'd be really fun. Good. We could have some coffee or tea. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so one of the questions I really like to ask all of my guests, um, and I... I'm excited to hear your answer. If you could help the world see one thing differently through your eyes, what would it be? If you could get the world to have some perspective and take the long view of things, 
get away from tribalism, get away from partisanship and pull back and see the whole of life, you know, how everything fits together, sort of yin-yang. That was one of the themes of one of my books. Uh, so Saturn, from a different perspective, that one image, you see it everywhere in a lot of books and, and on the internet, that very image of Saturn where you're looking back at it and you see the shadows on the backside and you see the shadow of the sphere cut across the rings and it just makes it look so three-dimensional for the first time. It's actually something real that's floating in space rather than just sort of a disk that's painted on the celestial sphere as we see it from the Earth. And that's why I think if you can go up one level in your thinking and see things from a more distant perspective, see how they fit together, that's what I'd like to see the world do better. We're not good at that. You know, we're too fragmented, too divided, and um, I'm afraid we're going to have to do some more evolving to get there. Mm. Individually and collectively, for sure. Exactly, yeah. You know, I feel like I could talk to you for a couple more hours, which would be great. <laughs> but for the sake of our one little podcast episode, I'll just ask the last question. Tony, do you have any other advice for us? I think just always keep on striving and always be curious. Use your fear of failure as a driver. That's the main thing. Uh, everybody has their limitations. Everybody has their fears one way or the other, except for very, very few of us. But you just have to work at it. You have to do things, but keep on doing. Mm. That's the only thing that I would add. Well, Tony, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm, I'm happy to have had a chance to meet you and bring you on the show. It's just been such a pleasure. Well, it's been enjoyable. I've enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, me too. You've drawn me out. Oh, good. Yes. Good, good. I don't think you need to be as afraid of public speaking as you say you are. Well, you've made me valuable. It's you, Abby. You've Aww, got it. <laughs> that's very sweet of you to say. You know, you do the same for me. You know, people ask me all the time. They're like, how do you find your guests? Because it's not easy to find people who are very satisfied with life, who've also had some success. It's, it's a strange set of outliers of people who are really happy and satisfied with life. And mm -hmm. I'm just so grateful to be able to talk to you about your journey and the things that make you tick and the way that you perceive things differently that help you to have a happier, more satisfied life. And if it weren't for you, I wouldn't even have a show. So <laughs> thank you. And um, thanks again to Lynn for introducing us. Us. I'm really grateful that your sister thought, you know, we work together occasionally in the chorus at the Met, and I'm really grateful that she thought to suggest mm -hmm. you because this has been a really great interview. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Abby. Thanks. And to our Patreon supporters, thank you so much for your continued support and encouragement. I so appreciate you. If you want to go the extra mile, just head on over to Apple Podcasts, search for The Piece of Persistence in the iTunes store, and leave us a review. Thanks again for joining us. As always, stay tuned next Thursday for another great interview to help help all of us find more happiness and success in our lives. But if we forget what really makes us sing and dance at night, it's the other people around and our dreams that lift us up from underground.